Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. Now, we already covered chapters 5 through 7. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and that was Christ's ministry of teaching. And today we're going to see that uh, Matthew, one of the disciples, has grouped together some healings in this particular portion of Scripture, and we see Christ's ministry of actions. So we see, uh, this is a good example to all of us, that there are teachings, there's a time to receive, and then there's a time to do, right? There's a time to act. Faith without works is dead, the Bible says. Now, in Jesus' case, of course, it was different because he, in, in teaching and in healing, uh, and we'll, we'll cover that scripture, this was a fulfillment of prophecy that he was indeed the chosen Messiah. Uh, and that was important because there were some false messiahs on the scene, that when persecution came, they just splintered off, and we haven't even heard of those groups unless we go into our history books. They don't exist anymore. Of course, Jesus was the Messiah, is the Messiah, and the cross and his dying for our sins and resurrection was really the ultimate and final proof of his Messiahship. Now, what we'll notice in this section is that Jesus ministers to three of the least esteemed in society, and I'm not gonna, you know, when I go through this, nothing says I have to cover a chapter every Sunday. I don't want to rush through this, and I don't want to keep you here for two hours either. Uh, I really want you to get what's going on here. So I'm going to divide the chapter in half, and in the first half, we're going to see uh, three people that Jesus ministers to. Number one, a leper. Number two, a Gentile. And number three, a woman. Again, this is that society. If you read your history books, you'll know what I'm talking about. Now, in Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus tells a parable. Now, understand this. The word parable in the Greek is parabole, and it's comprised of two words, and it literally means to cast alongside. And what a parable was, was Jesus would uh, explain a physical uh, illustration or a physical truth to illustrate something spiritual. So he would take something that we could see, something observable, and he would turn it into a spiritual truth. I believe this actually happened. Uh, He speaks about two men in verse 10 that went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, which was one of the strict religious leaders, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Very interesting that Jesus says that. He's supposed to be praying to God. But when you hear the prayer, you'll see that it was mostly self-aggrandizement. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, what's interesting here is that uh, one source that I read was, and Jesus really goes into some of it, but that the Pharisees would pray, Oh God, I thank you that I am a man and not a woman. I thank you that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. I thank you that I am a free man and not a slave. As a matter of fact, some portion or some semblance of that prayer is still available in the Jewish sitter today, and it's a cause of controversy. So there's a little background for you. Verse 1, it says, When he, Jesus, had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. 
you kind of scratch your head and say, wait a minute. When he went up the mountain, it was just his disciples that followed. Now, I don't know how long the Sermon on the Mount took. Uh, we went through ch- three chapters of it. Could have been a long day, could have been a few days. Uh, and you'd say, well, how did everyone else come up there? And I can just speculate and say maybe a, a shepherd boy was tending a flock and started seeing the crowd and listening to Jesus or the disciples. He goes back home, tells his mom and dad, they come. And then one of them leaves and tells everyone else in the village, before you know it, by the time he's done, he's got this following. And it's interesting because Jesus didn't set out to gain a following. Uh, So we see that Jesus is attractive. And we know that that's not based on his looks because Isaiah specifically tells us that he didn't come in a way to have these dynamic looks. That wasn't supposed to be the focus. You see, the thirsty soul is always going to be attracted to Jesus as the word of God. It's contagious. Now, some today try to reinvent Jesus, to try to dress him up, to try to make him look cool and hip, and it just doesn't work. The real Jesus, the real Jesus of the Bible is attractive to anyone from the very young to the very old. Verse 2, and behold, a leper came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now leprosy still exists today. You can look it up in the medical uh, manuals. The Greek word is lepros, so uh, it's understood that this was leprosy. Leprosy is caused by mycobacteria. There's two types. It's a granulomatous disease which attacks the peripheral nerves and the upper respiratory mucosa. And that's important because the resulting effect is blindness. It's uh, it's crippling. It's deforming. And uh, it's contagious. Now, this was isolated by Gerhard Hansen in 1873. And that disease is now treatable with a multi-drug treatment. But it took a long time to find that. Now, this is what I find interesting. If you go back to the Old Testament, and I'm not going to cover it because the the chapters are very long. You can read it on your own. Leviticus 13 and 14 speak about the detection of leprosy, the incubation period, and the result in quarantine from leprosy. Did you know that? Pretty amazing. It gets better. Uh, Leviticus 13, 45 through 46 says that, when uh, a leprous man would see others that weren't lepers and he would come close, he would have to take his arm and cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. Now that's amazing because they didn't have the microscope back many thousands of years. And we know today that leprosy is contagious through droplets from the respiratory tract. Pretty impressive, God. So I just read an article this morning that it said that uh, over 60% of biology teachers in high school surveyed don't, don't teach evolution with any zeal. They don't, some of them don't even bring it up. And I wonder why that is. Because it's ridiculous. That's why it is. You know, Because all these years ago, before the electron microscope, before staining cultures and all the fancy stuff that we have today, God told his people, I could paraphrase this list. Listen, let's not talk about microbes right now. That's going to come later. But suffice it to say, cover your mouth when you cough. You know what I'm saying? And we teach that to our kids, of course. Um, If the person was deemed positive, there was uh, leper colonies. They would have to stay away from society and not to affect everyone else. Uh, And 
if they found certain spots that were positive, they would burn the clothes and destroy the clothes. Pretty amazing. Uh, who says the Bible's not scientific? In verse 2, the leper, number one, worshiped the Lord and said, if you are willing. Now, these are two good lessons for us, worshiping God. Sometimes in the, in the uh, pursuit to make Jesus relatable, we forget who he is. And sometimes we have to come back to our basics and realize that he is God, the son, and he needs to be worshiped. So this leper had it right. Number two, he said, if you are willing, even in the Christian community, and I can be guilty of it too, we think sometimes in prayer that God owes us an answer or he owes us the answer that we want. But the truth is we acquiesce to his sovereignty if you are willing. It's important. Leprosy, though, in the Old Testament now was a picture of sin. And that doesn't mean that everyone who had leprosy was being judged or punished. It just was a type, an illustration of sin. And we'll see this. Because Jesus' cleansing illustrates two spiritual truths regarding sin. Number one, Jesus has the power to forgive sin. You might say, what are, we, what are you talking about? When some guy comes, Jesus heals him, where does sin come into the picture? Well, there's another healing where Jesus heals a man, but he first says, your sins are forgiven. And he's chided by the religious teachers. And, you know, here's the deal. The Bible says when sin entered the world, death entered the world, and death through sin. That's why Adam didn't evolve from an amoeba, okay? Because there was no death until sin entered the world. We have to hold the line on that as people of faith. The, the religion of evolution is starting to crumble. Even the teachers who, who may not be devout Christians in the public schools don't even want to bring it up with the students. Okay, so it's something to understand. So it's because of sin and our rebellion against God that there is death in the world and disease through that vehicle. The second truth is that Jesus had the power to heal disease that are a result of sin. So he can do both, forgive sins, and forgive the things that are manifestation of that sin. Now, the leper accosting Jesus, this is interesting. What did I say about him covering his mouth or crying unclean? He just goes to Jesus and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So here's a guy who really broke God's law in a sense, Mosaic law, by accosting Jesus. However, this man saw hope right in front of him. And you're going to see the faith of at least these first two uh, historical figures. This leper, I mean, I don't know what his religious background was. I don't know what it was, but he saw hope standing right in front of him. And he, everything just went out the window, and he just was laying a hold of that hope. And that hope is Jesus Christ. And Jesus didn't chide him, didn't rebuke him. He had compassion on the man. He saw his heart. He saw someone struggling, and he healed him. Right? This, is, this is good stuff. Now, conversely, Jesus touching the leper would have also been against Mosaic law had the leper, had the leprosy had the power to defile Jesus. He, Jesus would have been ceremonial, ceremonially unclean and unfit to worship. But we know as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that the leprosy was not able to influence him. Influence. Jesus always influenced society for good. He never lets society influence him for bad. And these are good lessons as believers that we should understand. Uh, young, young believer in the Lord, 
uh, we had a discussion. He said, you know, whenever I go out with my friends, I find myself doing things that I shouldn't do. And I said, you need to give it some time and build up your strength in the Lord then and maybe not do that for a while until you have the power to have a positive influence for your friends, to your friends. And see, influence is never static. It's always dynamic. It's always moving in one direction or the other. Okay, so that's a good spiritual lesson for us today. Think about our relationships. Think about our friends. When we're around our friends, are we influencing them for good or are we allowing them to influence us for bad? And Jesus always went in that one direction. In verse four, Jesus says, tell no one. I love that. How many times did he say, don't tell anybody? And the next day, the whole town found, how do you keep that stuff a secret? But the truth was, Uh, It wasn't time for his messianic presentation. As a matter of fact, according to Mark 1.45, he told everyone. And he told so many people that uh, Jesus had a hard time ministering because of the thronging of the crowds. On the contrary, it's been said that we're told as believers to give the good news. And many times we don't tell anyone. You see that reversed there? I've I've referenced this before, but I'm going to talk a little bit more because I saw more of the video. Those of you who are familiar with Penn Jillette, the famous atheist and uh, magician, now he said some pretty crude things, but there was one interview where he ran into a Christian businessman, and the business, he said this guy was the real deal. I mean, as an atheist, he could tell that this guy was a real solid Christian, gave him a Bible, told him about salvation, and Penn Jillette now goes on YouTube, you can find it, and he says... And I've said this before, I've referenced this. He goes, if you have the keys to eternal life, if you have salvation, how much do you have to hate someone to not share it with everyone else? He goes on, and and I found out this part. He said, this is an atheist. He goes, I don't respect a Christian who doesn't proselytize, who doesn't tell others about salvation. He goes, don't tell me it's not socially unacceptable. Man, I should give him five minutes up here. The guy's pretty good. I've referenced Christopher Hitchens before. I mean, these guys are atheists. And it's amazing that they know the truth. (laughs) Pretty impressive stuff. But Jesus says to the former leper, show yourself to the priest, offer the gift according to really Mosaic law in Leviticus 14. Uh, Jesus honored the law. Now, this gift consisted of uh, he would have to shave all his hair. uh, He would wash. uh, There was a ceremonial. There's a sacrifice. But what's amazing is that God's law, even thousands of years before Jesus, because of God's grace, had provisions for the healing of this awful disease. God knew in advance, even though man caused this sin issue, that he was going to show mercy and grace to mankind. And there were some that were healed of leprosy even prior to Jesus. I love that about my God. When last uh, weekend, when we were at the married couples overnight, it was a great time of fellowship and teaching and, and things like that, and fellowship. But Jesus, we, we read, and, and I covered the part about uh, the man loving his, the husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church. And then we talked about how Christ did love the church. And there's a portion in Ephesians where Jesus presents the church, right, glorious and spotless. And we're part of the church. Wow, me? I know I'm a sinner. I've been a sinner for a long time. And when Jesus looks at me and, and he's got his arm around me, he says to me that I'm... And there's an issue with Jesus taking on our sin at the cross. And believe, when we believe in him, 
we, we attribute his perfection. You know, we get his nature and character. And I said that it reminds me of a, a guy, uh, you know, he presents us to himself and also to the father. Reminds me of a man who has a, his wife and he puts his arm around his wife and says, Dad, isn't she beautiful? That's the way Jesus sees us. It's pretty neat. My question is, do you believe that? You see, this is cool. Jamesburg, I love this local, very tight-knit community. I try to introduce people, and they already know each other. Uh, But every Sunday, somebody comes in uh, from the local area, and they may not have been exposed to the Bible. You may be here for the first time. You've never read the Bible before. And I'm going to ask you this question. Do you believe as an individual that that spotlessness, that perfection, that that self of value and worth is open to you as an individual because it is, it's available. Do you feel today sometimes like that spiritual leper? You know, maybe you have a past, maybe you have done things and you've tried God and you've tried this and you just say, you know, I just have too many problems. I'm just here because somebody made me come today. But I will say this, it's no coincidence that we're reading this scripture because God That opportunity is available to you today. Just like the leper said, Lord, if you are willing, Jesus was always willing, right? If you ask Jesus at the end of the service, you know, we give you opportunity. Jesus has his hand out. He's ready to touch you. He's ready to clean you from your sins. He's ready to be Lord in your life. And he's ready to present you glorious and spotless, like it says in Ephesians 5. It's available for you today. Verse 5. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now, understand that the Roman soldiers were hated by the Jews. Why? Well, because there were uprisings and the soldiers would double as soldiers and police officers and they were very harsh and brutal. They didn't stand for uprisings, and they were harsh with the people. So there was this animosity between the Jewish community and the Romans. It was a very tenuous, it was a flimsy relationship. And this is part of the reason why the, uh, the Jewish leadership didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah, because they wouldn't stand for any Messiah, any Messiah that didn't knock out the Romans and put the Jews back in power. But that's not what God had planned the first time. It was a spiritual revival. We know that the Lord will come back again, and he will do that on the planet. He will establish a righteous kingdom. But that's not yet. So here's a little background, and I believe that when we understand the background of what we're reading, it really gives us a flavor 
for the scriptures. It really helps us to get a deeper understanding. So this Roman centurion was a military leader having authority over 100 soldiers. And it was very unusual for this a centurion to plead. And he's pleading with Jesus. But this warrior realized that with all the conquests on the battlefield, this servant that he loved, this disease that the servant had, he knew he couldn't conquer it. So it brought a humility out of this man, and he pleaded with the Lord. Something special about him. And if the account in Luke 7 is a parallel to this, he also honored the Jewish faith. I believe that when we understand, I mean, we have to understand that in the Roman Empire, slavery was acceptable. This Roman centurion could have very easily uh, said, this guy can't work for me anymore. Take him outside, get rid of him, get me another slave from the market. And that's just was reality in the Roman Empire. But he loved this man. He treated him as family. It was more amazing that this pagan centurion had faith in the Jewish Messiah, and Jesus rewards him for it. I could see Jesus with a twinkle in his eye when this man started speaking. You know, just how to, you know, the, you see some of these Jesus movies, and Jesus is always looking miserable, you know. But I, I don't believe that's how Jesus came. I believe he w- it was a joy for him to come and to touch us and to live amongst us and to teach us and to, to heal people. That's the Jesus that I believe came the first time. But God loves it when we trust in him. And as believers, when we think great things of our God and we really trust him, boy, he really loves that. He really does. I can tell you when uh, we were as a church, Calvary Chapel Crossfields was in the school for years. You know, I, I was like, Lord, I just want to find a home for our fellowship. And uh, after about, we were in contract negotiations once, and that fell through. And after about 10 or 11 times, somebody told us about this church. And I drove by, and I was like, whoa, we can't afford that. You know what I'm saying? We have some money in the bank, but that's, I can just imagine what that would be like. And that was in the flesh. In the spirit, I said, you know what, Lord? I love Calvary Chapel Crossfields, but I know that you love them more. My love does not compare to your love. And, and, you know, all throughout the, the, the thing, I just had just great ideas about what the Lord can do, and here we are. And if you really understand the details, it's pretty amazing. And we just have to believe in the Lord, and he loves when we believe in him and trust him. In verse 6, we see this condition of the centurion's uh, servant. Uh, the Greek word is paralutikos, where we get the word paralytic from. Now, this could have been some type of palsy. It could have been a cerebral palsy. It could have been an advanced form of Parkinson's disease. Nobody really knows. But what we do know is the servant was in pain. He was disabled. And he, he couldn't perform his regular tasks even as a human being. And in verse 8 and 9, we see another quality of the centurion. He felt that Christ was unworthy to enter his home. He had a respect for the Lord and a spiritual understanding of his own spiritual condition. And it's something that our generation really could learn. And when I say our generation, you know, some say, oh, it's the youth. It isn't the youth. Sometimes, it doesn't matter how old we are, we can still have more reverence and respect for the Lord. And I don't think we can ever get enough of that. The centurion says, but only say the word, knowing the power that Christ yielded or wielded. He goes on. He says that he's a man under authority. He understands authority. He wields authority, and he's also under authority. And that Jesus had authority, really, over any illness and sickness. Amazing, some of these uh, folks had such spiritual understanding. 
Now, a little word on authority. Many want to be in authority, and you could look at it in the world. You can look at it in the church. They, they want authority. They, they're interested in leadership. But understand that we cannot be in authority effectively unless we know how to be under authority, unless we know how to submit to authority. I would tell you that as a police officer for years, you know, my sergeant would say, do this, do that, and I would do it. Because if I didn't, I could get written up, eventually lose my job. So there's a consequence to that. Then when I became a believer, there was also authority that I need to have, needed to have under my senior pastor, my pastor Lloyd, who I still call him my pastor. And, you know, I was very critical at first, and, and I was a difficult, probably, person, and he's kind, and he says they were worse than you, and, and it's very nice of him. <laughs> but it wasn't really, I really couldn't wield authority in a spiritual sense until I could submit myself to authority. And I learned some hard lessons, and there was many apologies that I made to my pastor. But you know what's neat? After 15, 16 years, he's now my peer. I don't talk to him that much, but when we do speak, we pray together, we share ideas. But that took a long time for him to become my peer. I really had to learn some hard lessons in between that. But Jesus marveled. Now, what does that mean, he marveled? Well, the word also means admired, probably warmed his heart, um, You know, I'm just going to kind of digress for a little bit. I speak from what the scripture says. We always use the Bible here. But I will tell you that when something's my opinion, that it's my opinion and take it with a grain of salt. Because my opinions do not hold the same weight as what the Bible says. So let me just digress a little bit and humor me. Um, When we look at the miracles, I'm seeing and I'm hearing and I, I try to stay real close to the reports on the mission fields. In some of these persecuted areas, believe it or not, there's a thriving church in Iran, right? There's, a, there's thriving churches in, in North Korea, right? Under the penalty of death, these believers meet, and some amazing things are happening in remote areas of India, Africa. And some may say, well, how come there's not as many miraculous things happening here? And there are. God does answer prayer. But maybe to that magnitude? Well, this is my idea, okay, four things, and I'll start with three and then move to the fourth one later. I think that every society has a challenge. If you're in a persecuted nation, the challenge is to to say that you're a believer, even if you think it might mean something horrible to you or your family. So there's a courage issue that needs to take place. I think in America, we can say freely who we are, but I think that the, the things of the world and money and stuff can can taint us. So every Christian culture has a challenge. But I would say this, that with all our advances in medicine and and, uh, computers and such, and that's a good thing, I think our society as a whole has a disdain for faith in the supernatural. It's almost as if we're saying to God, you know what, we we have these laser scalpels, Lord. We've got some, you know, when we do surgery, we put helmets on people's heads and there's GPS and it, 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 you know, it guides the scalpel. Thank you, Lord, but we're doing okay by ourselves. Well, God would be like, that's fine. The second thing is that I think God tests our perseverance and our persistence in a fast food society. You know, we want it done now, Lord. Tomorrow I have to have an answer. God, you got to give me one. God is not going to jump when we say jump. He's like, listen, I want, you to have, I want you to be persistent. I want you to have patience. If you want to go off on your own without me, that's fine. And the third thing is that, you know, when you see some of these mass healings on TV, on the so-called Christian channels, you know, it comes out years later that a lot of them are frauds. 
Here's the deal. If God said to me, for two days, Joe, you can heal anyone with your touch. I'm going to give you that power for two days. I wouldn't get on the news. I wouldn't go on TV. I'd go to the cancer ward with where the children are in the hospitals and start getting those kids out of there. Boom, you're out. Boom, you're healed. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, God's not going to be mocked. And it's just, again, my idea, take it with a grain of salt. But moving on, verses 11 and 12. Many would come from outside the borders of God's kingdom, he said, basically, God's covenant people, the Jews, and sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if we go down back to Isaiah 42, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, the Messiah was supposed to come as a light to the Gentiles, and the Jews in many ways were supposed to reflect the light of God to the pagan nations. A lot of times they failed. Instead of, again, remember that influence? Instead of influencing the others for the monotheistic God, they started receiving the practices, the pagan practices of the polytheists. So that was a problem. You know, this was a good discussion that I had with one of my ushers. And he said to me, and this is so cool, he said to me, I can't put my finger on it, Pastor Joe, but a friend of mine came to me and told me that Jesus never came for the Gentiles. That happened with Paul and and, and some of the later books. So one of the scriptures I brought him to was this. It's amazing. When you go through the Bible verse by verse, eventually, if you're here long enough or at Calvary Chapel, you will have the whole Bible under your belt, and you'll pretty much know, you'll hear some of these spurious teachings and say, you know what, I I was taught that. I can't find it, but I'm going to look for it. So that's kind of a neat thing. So Jesus says specifically that the Gentiles, those from outside the Jewish uh, culture, would come in and sit down with the patriarchs in heaven. But the sons of the kingdom would be cast into outer darkness. Now, of course, if your heart is really for the Lord, he wouldn't do that to you. But sometimes there's a veneer of being among God's people. This is sobering. Now, we saw in chapter 7... The last chapter, let's go, let's move from the Jews to the Christian community. Jesus said, not all that say, Lord, Lord, you know, we did all these things in your name, will be in the kingdom. I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's pretty frightening. Um, Like some of the Jews in ancient times, are we banking on a flimsy foundation? If I was to ask you, do you think you're going to heaven? What would be your answer? If it was yes, I would ask you why. What would be your answer? Is it because we go to a Calvary chapel? No. You know, some have this crazy idea that Calvaries are the only place where there's good Bible teaching. Absolutely not. Is it because we're part of the Christian culture? Because the rest of my family are saved, so by osmosis I'm going to absorb some of that salvation rays and I'm going to be saved myself? When the rapture comes, I'm going to hold on to my husband's foot and, you know, he, I'm going to go up with him? It doesn't work. Can the Christian community fall into the same trap that the Jewish community fell into at the time of Christ? Sure it can. What are you relying on? What what is your basis for saying that you're going to make it into heaven? I'm a good person? Good works? Even in the Old Testament, it doesn't say that we get to heaven based on good works. I don't know where that came from. It's not in the totality of Scripture. But people still believe it. Do you know him? Because chances are, if you don't know him, that when you see him, he's going to say, I didn't know you. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a parallel uh, discussion. There's a converse to it. I don't know Jesus. If I don't really know him, when I see him, I can't expect he's going to say, oh, yeah, we're, we're good friends. We've known each other. We've had a relationship. It doesn't work like that. Because if it's not based on a relationship with Christ and being born again of the Spirit, 
Then it's to be banished into the outer darkness with gnashing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that expression just means that um, it's still used, it was used, it's still used a little bit today, but gnashing of teeth means a, a, a symbolic of just, it's like a sort of look when you grind your teeth at night when you have a bad dream. You know, it, it's a difficulty, it's a rage, it's regret, it's remorse, all those negative emotions, and you're just gnashing your teeth. So it's not a good thing, suffice it to say. In verse 13, Jesus heals from a distance. Even though he was confined to his earthly body, he, he could just say a word, and when this centurion went home, his servant was probably up, serving, singing, you know what I'm saying, uh, walking around, and he could just do that, Jesus. He had the power to do that. What lessons can we learn from the centurion, this pagan, outside-of-the-covenant, uh, looked-down-upon person in society? What can we learn about authority? What can we learn about reverence and respect for God? Faith? Faith, brothers and sisters. Amazing that this man had the faith that he did. Humility. Humility is one of those things, I don't care how long you live, you never master. Right? And if you say, oh, I'm really mastered, I'm really humble. Just by saying that, you're not humble, right? Verse 14, third person Jesus comes in contact with. Now, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her. Then she arose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Well, Peter was married. I think the cat's out of the bag there. There's a, <laughs> there's a tradition that says that Peter was the first pope and he was, wasn't married. Well, this debunks that. Uh, we know in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says the same thing. I could take a, a believing wife like Cephas and the other disciples. So, you know, it's, it's backed up in Scripture by by Jesus, or by Matthew writing about this situation, and by the Apostle Paul. Now, we're not told how serious Peter's mother-in-law's condition was. Well, it was some type of contagion that caused the body to go into a fevered state to fight the illness, and, you know, we've all been there. Um, Could have been really serious, could have been a flu, who knows. Regardless, Jesus just dismissed the contagion and brought her back to homeostasis, and she got up and served. That's pretty impressive. Again, we read the Bible. Okay, that's nice. What's next? Wait a minute. Whatever it was, he got rid of the contagion. Brought the, Listen, when I'm done being sick, that last day, you're no more fever, no more sweating, but you're wiped out. I don't know about you, but I, I can't stop eating and I can't stop sleeping. You know, My body's trying to get back to its, its homeostasis, but she just gets up and serves. So whatever Jesus did, he put everything back together perfectly just with a touch. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> okay, so I lost my place. That's, so give me a second. Um, okay, thank you. <laughs> what was the first thing that she did when the fever left? She served him. This was a sign of appreciation and responsibility and a sign of duty. You know, when, when I got saved, uh, one of the first things that I did, or I wanted to do, when they would let me, is serve. 
in the church, but it didn't have to be in the church. I did things outside the church. Uh, and I didn't, I'm not saying this because I'm great. I'm saying this because he's great. You see, we can't buy salvation. We can't pay Jesus back for salvation. Give me a few million years and I'll pay you back, Lord. It doesn't work like that. We can't barter for salvation, but we can show appreciation. Right? And I'd show me a, a person who's been saved for a long time and they've never served. And I'll show you someone who doesn't appreciate the depths of what Jesus saved them from. How many of you have heard of the luge? The Olympic, I guess, Olympic sport where you're kind of on this little nothing, right? And you're just like, I think the top speed was 98 miles an hour. That's insane, by the way. They just come down this snow-covered, like, slope. I will tell you that in, in the luge of life, I was in the luge of life in a spiritual way before being saved. And let me tell you something. It was going straight down. It was weighted in the front. And I was going, it was greased. And I was going right to hell. I'm just telling you. I, I knew my, my life before Christ, and I knew that now I look back, and I'm like, I'm so glad I didn't die in that state. But the Lord was merciful. And I will tell you that I know what I was saved from. And again, it's not to guilt monger, but because I know what I was saved from, I just want to serve him my whole life. And if that's not our desire, we need to go back into the scripture and we need to pray because we're missing something. Right? We're missing the understanding and the appreciation of what the Lord did for us. Verses 16 and 17, obviously the report of Jesus spread and everyone and anyone comes with a problem to Jesus and he heals them. Here's another thing. I remember the one story about the 10 lepers. I don't remember Jesus ever saying, you know, hey, Peter, did you check them at the door? I can't handle 10 lepers right now. Whatever the issue was, demon possession, leprosy, disability, Jesus, nothing caught him by surprise. You know, he just had that, that compassion and he had the power to do it, and just with a word. And he would say, don't tell anyone about the healing. Now, the last point, we, we talked about the three reasons about the, maybe the mass miracles and such, but the fourth point on this is, why did Jesus, it almost seems like he gave the person an impossible task. You just healed someone from leprosy. How do you expect them not to tell anyone? Well, the other thing was, there are some that believe, that call themselves Christians, that Jesus came to do miracles. That's not why he came. Jesus said, for this reason I came into the world is to die for, for your sins. And if I don't die, you know, you're, you're lost. You're in trouble. It was great that Jesus did the miracles, but he also didn't want to turn it into a sideshow. The focus was not about miracles. It was about salvation. It was about being born again of the Spirit, right? What's the sense in someone being healed or the whole world being healed only to die in their sins and to be damned for eternity? It was a sign of compassion, mercy, fulfilled scripture, but it wasn't the main focus about what he, was trying, what he was trying to accomplish. And lastly, verse 17 tells us that Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled here. If you look at Isaiah 53, 4, it looks like it was taken out of that. But Isaiah 53 as a whole is a picture of Jesus standing in the gap for us. And we can go through some of these. Of course, his substitution uh, on the cross for us should be there, dying for our sins, right? Salvation. Two, forgiving our sins. Three, being familiar with our burdens. The Bible says that whatever we go through, Jesus faced the same temptations and burdens. Even though he was fully God, he was fully man. And here, the fifth point is provisions for healing. This was prophesied in the scripture. 
So I ask you again, what have you come here today carrying? What burdens are you holding on to? What is your value, your, when you think about yourself, do you, and listen, we, we can hide our low self-esteem, our low sense of value with conceit, with humor, with a lot of other things. But really take a, a really strong uh, look at yourself inside and make a heart check. Do you have a low sense of worth? It took me a while. I, I didn't think I was worthy of salvation. It took a while. I think the case has been made that God cares for us. And, and here's the deal. With these three in society, they, society placed them on the lowest rung of the ladder of life. And Jesus went to them. And he ministered to them. Right? And he gave them a sense of worth. Now, not the self-esteem that we have today. You know, have self-esteem, get what you want, use people. That's not biblical self-esteem. God places intrinsic value in us. We have to understand that if it was just you, just one person, he would have died for you. I firmly believe that. Did you happen to catch any of the names of these folks that we just read today? Not me. I didn't either. But I know that they were convinced that the Lord loved them. So here's my desire for you today, to be convinced that you have value and worth in the eyes of the Lord, and that every single one of you, he desires a relationship with you. He wants you to go to heaven. See, I've said this, the Bible is, uh, the way of salvation is exclusive, but all-inclusive. It's a paradox. There is no other way but through Christ. However, everyone can come to him. God's desire is that all would be saved, right? Right? So my desire is that you would understand the value that God places on you. Whatever you're doing, you could be into drugs, you could be in the shoplifting, whatever the case may be, it doesn't matter. God wants to save you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we just pray that for those of us who have been walking a while, that you would help us to understand new truths and get a new understanding of your word and to... Just meditate on it and let it be food for our souls.